Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. The biblical scholar Christopher Wright had a friend from India who was teaching um, at the local university. He's teaching engineering. He had grown up in India in one of the lower castes, one of the despised castes in India, and had experienced a lot of oppression in his life. His family had land stolen from them. They had all kind of harassment and violence and oppression against them. And he made up his mind that he would work hard in school so that he could make something of himself, so he could get to university and he could show the oppressors. So the day that he arrived at the university, he found a copy of the Bible, a translation of the Bible in his own language. He had never seen a Bible. He had never read the Bible. He knew that it was the book of Christians. It was the holy book for Christians. So he decided to start reading this Bible, and he just randomly, randomly opened it up to First Kings chapter 21 and the story of Naboth and King Ahab. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, trying to tell them about Christ, I don't usually start in 1 Kings 21. Naboth and King Ahab, and King Ahab was a wicked, powerful king, and he stole land from Naboth. And Christopher Wright's friend knew what that felt like. And he could relate to that story because it had happened to his own family. But then he kept reading and he read about a man named Elijah who came and spoke in the name of some God against King Ahab for what he was doing and saying that God will judge you for that. And this warmed his heart. God is on the side of the oppressors or the oppressed. God cares about those who are hurting and who have been mistreated enough so that he speaks against the powerful who oppress them. And this stirred his heart and he kept reading in the Bible and eventually he got to the part about Jesus, life and death and burial and resurrection. But a key part of his conversion to Christ was understanding about how God feels about people who are oppressed. Now, that man, I believe, would have been drawn to the Old Testament prophecy of Micah. Because many of those themes are right at the heart of Micah. We're going through the Old Testament minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament here at Harvest. We're taking one 
per week, and today it is Micah who talks about a shepherding ruler. Now, many of us, maybe most of us, react differently when we hear the words judgment and the word hope. For Christopher Wright's friend, judgment was a warm thing for him that gave him hope. The Old Testament prophet weaves them together in a powerful message that is applicable to God's people of all times. And here's the essential message of Micah. The God who judges sin also brings hope. Now let's walk through it. Let me set this up. Micah did not sit down and write a book for the Bible like the Apostle Paul, for instance, and he, and he wrote letters in the New Testament. Paul would sit down and, and write these letters with a sustained argument from start to finish. That's not what Micah is. It doesn't start at 1-1 one, one and end at the end of chapter 7 in a sustained argument all the way through. It is a collection of Micah's sermons or his oracles, the various things he preached through the years. And because of that, It's not always easy to outline a minor prophet. And maybe we shouldn't even try to outline a minor prophet because he's taking various things. And there's a little bit of back and forth. But they all it all can be summarized in some way by three cycles in the book of judgment and hope. And it's interesting. In all three cycles, it starts with judgment And it ends up in hope. And they all start with the word hear or the word listen. Chapters 1 and 2 start with chapter 1, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you listen. And then chapters 3 and 4 or 3 through 5 starts, Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob. And then chapter 6 and 7 is the third cycle Listen to what the Lord says. So if you were going to put it on a, on a, on a chart, uh, it would look like that right there. It, it, there would be a column for judgment and a column for hope. And there would be something in one and two, something in three through five and something in six through seven. And we're going to, we're going to walk through that today. And then we're going to ask, well, how does that apply to, to us who live 3000 years later? So as we go through the book, I want to encourage you to pay attention, not just to the fact that God is a God of judgment, but what are the things that God says he's going to judge for? And that's very important for us. So the first cycle is this, sin leads to exile. We begin at verse 2 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord that came to Micah, of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now there's some names in there and places that we need to remind ourselves who they are and what they are. Specifically Micah and then Samaria and Jerusalem. Let me put this map up that reminds us at this time in Old Testament history, Israel, God's people, was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, the darker green, was called Israel, and the capital of Israel, 
Israel was Samaria. All right. The southern kingdom was called, known as Judah, and the capital of it was Jerusalem. Micah lived in the southern kingdom. His, his town, Morasheth, um, was about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he lived in the southern kingdom. He spoke mainly to Judah, but he also spoke some to Assyria. And these two capital cities, he speaks Samaria in the north and Jerusalem in the south. At this time, we believe when Micah was prophesying, the northern kingdom, Israel, was just about to be overrun. You see Assyria up on the map there? The nation of Assyria was about to overrun them. And he, he's, he's warning Judah, he's warning the southern kingdom about their religious corruption and moral corruption that's so prevalent in their society. Verse 3, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. In other words, Judah has a problem. And their problem is idolatry. They, they, they make idols. They worship these idols. They give time and attention to things other than God. And they, they make them their idols. And because of that, their sin of idolatry is going to lead them into exile. In fact, he concludes in verse 9, For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And we transition into chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. Now, temptation to sin often comes to us by surprise, right? It it just, somehow you're suddenly tempted to do something and it, it comes to you and you have to make a decision in that moment. How many of you have ever been tempted to sin when you didn't plan for it? Can I see your hand? All right. Now, we all can relate to that, but these people... Their sin didn't just like catch them by surprise. Look what they did. They plotted evil on their beds. They thought about this for a while. They're laying there at night thinking about how they could do wrong. 
I remember we're, today, later, we're going to commission Heidi Record as she goes to Nigeria. And I remember a staff retreat. Sometimes at our staff retreats, strain, we love each other, we're unified completely, but sometimes little tricks happen. And there are certain people that will put animals or replicas of animals in people's beds or under their beds and I'm not going to name any names. I might be guilty myself of lying on my bed, plotting how I can do that. This is what these people are doing. They're, they're laying around thinking about it, how they can do wrong. What, what are they thinking about what they could do wrong? Verse 2 tells us they covet fields and seize them, then houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. You see, small landowners had debts and they couldn't keep up with their land. And so what did the, these powerful, oppressive people came in and coveted those other lands and stole them away from them because they could. And they're laying around at night thinking about how to do that, how to oppress people. How to covet. The Mosaic law had forbidden covetousness and said that covetousness is idolatry. Paul said that in Colossians. So not only were they disobeying the law against covetousness, they were disobeying the law about caring for those who were weaker. So their sin, if you want to add it, was defrauding innocent people. So there was idolatry and then they were Defrauding innocent people. They were stealing things from them. Therefore, verse 3, the Lord says, I'm planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. They are going to be exiled. They are going to be taken away. Sin does lead to exile. It's going to lead to exile for these people. They're going to be taken away into Babylon. But there's judgment, but there's also hope. And coming out of that, here is the hope. The hope is that God is going to gather a remnant and be their king. Look at chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen. Like a flock in its pasture, the place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. They're going to have a tough time for years and years, but God is going to save the remnant and he's going to be their king. That's the first cycle, chapters 1 and 2. We come to chapter 3, and now we get the second cycle. It's not just that the people are doing this and powerful people are doing this. The the leaders have failed. The leadership of the nation has failed. Verse 5, this is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. So think about what a prophet's supposed to do. 
A prophet is supposed to say to people whatever God says to the prophet, right? God speaks to the prophet and then they say it. But not that that wasn't what was happening there. It's like, okay, if if you're going to you know, grease my palms, if you're going to feed me, if you're going to you're going to give me good things, then then I'm going to say peace on you. <laughs> but if you don't if you don't do that, I'm going to wage war on you. So in other words, they weren't giving true prophecies. They weren't true prophets from God. It, they, they were false. It was like if, if, if they got fed by them, okay, we'll give you a good prophecy. But if you don't feed me, I'm going to give you a bad prophecy. So false prophets, that's another sin that was happening there. Verse 9, hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right. And God speaks to him. And look again, it summarizes it in verse 11. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortune for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. So you had leaders, and you had priests, and you had prophets, and they didn't have financial integrity. And yet, they were saying, it's okay. God is with us. And that just wasn't true. So there were unjust leaders. You had false prophets, and you had unjust leaders. Now, we're talking about Israel... 800 years before Christ, but are you recognizing any other societies in our world, maybe current ones? (laughs) Leadership has failed, but there is hope. This cycle of judgment moves to hope that new Jerusalem will be exalted with God's rule. In other words, Jerusalem is not being ruled by good rulers now. When Michael was talking, things are bad now. You've got bad, failed leadership now, but good leadership is going to come. Look what he says in chapter four, verse one. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not Take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the exiles and those I've brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. And look at the last sentence. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Now, there are several prophecies that Michael made in his book here that came true, that have already come true. 
He predicted that Samaria would be leveled. That was fulfilled in 722 B.C. He predicted that Jerusalem would be destroyed. That was fulfilled in 586 B.C. He predicted that the Jews would be exiled to Babylon. That was fulfilled in 603, 597, and 586. He predicted that God will bring the Jewish people back from their captivity. That was first fulfilled in 536 B.C. He predicted, we're going to get to it in a minute, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in chapter 5. And that was fulfilled at about 3 or 4 B.C. And now this one that we're reading is the only one in Micah that hasn't been fulfilled yet that is still going to be fulfilled. That Messiah will reign with peace over all the earth and people will learn from him. It has begun to be fulfilled in Jesus, but there's still a future day when it's going to be completely fulfilled and we look forward to that day. Now, in this back and forth, he goes back to judgment now and he says, essentially, Israel, you're in such bad shape, you can't save yourself. So he calls on them, marshal your troops, beginning chapter 5. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. That seems to be what happened to Israel's ruler when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came in. But there are even more powerful words of hope that come right on the heels of that. And that is that the Messiah is going to shepherd and rule. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me the one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Have you ever heard those words? Maybe around Christmas time. <laughs> those words are often read around Christmas time because they are a messianic prophecy. They are predicting the coming of the Messiah. He looks in the near sense at they, they're going to go into exile and they need somebody to bring them back from exile. They need that kind of ruler. And he predicts that it's going to happen, but he does it in such a way that it's a picture of an even greater ruler that's going to save and rescue God's people and rule over them and shepherd over them. And I'll tell you who that is. That is Jesus Christ. Do you remember King Herod, the name King Herod in the New Testament? He was called King of the Jews, but he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't Jewish by birth. Rome 
the Roman Empire made him what they call a client king over Judah. He had Judea, he had the, na- the, the province of Judea, and he was over them. And he heard all this stirring going on when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's like somebody's been born king of the Jews, and this made him nervous. He was upset because he knew that he wasn't the real king of the Jews. And so in Matthew chapter 2, what does he do? He calls together all the religious leaders. And when he had called them to the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was going to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. What prophet? What prophet? <laughs> Micah. Micah wrote it. What did Micah say? Uh, You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this one was foretold hundreds of years before Jesus came and completely fulfilled when he did come. Well, there's one more cycle of judgment and hope, that's chapters 6 and 7. And basically it just is this, Israel is guilty and they are broken. I mean, there's this hope for the Messiah to come, but right now they are guilty and broken. And it's, it, picture a courtroom. It's like, this is like a lawsuit. It's like God is making his case against Israel in chapter 6 and 7. They are charged with forgetting God and his wonderful acts. And they're charged with, as a result, they haven't had genuine devotion to him. And so, apparently, they thought, in spite of all of this, you know, we've got this idolatry. We, we don't treat each other well. Our leaders aren't just, people are taking bribes, and all this is going on. Somehow they thought, well, you know what, if we just if we just keep offering those sacrifices, we'll be okay. If we just keep offering those sacrifices, we'll be okay. But what did what did God say? Well, Micah says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Why would God say something like that to them? Remember, this is not a just society. This is a society that's not acting in justice, or with justice, I should say. But in in front of it, it could sound different. They're not acting with justice. They're not being humble. They're not showing mercy to each other. He says, shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with bags of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. 
So we can add another offense. They cheated each other. They had the dishonest scales. They would go to weigh the things when they buy and purchase and the scales weren't right. Verse 2 of chapter 7, the faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. There is ruthlessness and hostility. And honestly, this sounds a lot like our own world. Unfortunately, I could marshal countless examples in America and throughout the world where there's ruthlessness and there's hostility and there's injustice. Let me just mention one, just one. In 2014, Gary Haugen and Victor Boutros wrote a book called The Locust Effect. And they, they were talking about injustice. And this, these were stats that are a few years old, but these things are still happening. I, I can't say they're still happening at the same exact rate, but it's, this is recent. This is a recent book. They talked about the violent and the lethal forms of gender discrimination that happened throughout the world. And at that point, 2014, globally, 5,000 women and girls are murdered every year by so-called honor killings where family members would feel disgraced because the sister or the daughter has acted immodestly or she's fallen in love with, quote, the wrong person or because most cruelly they've been defiled by rape. Every year, millions of girls in the developing world, about one out of seven, are forced into marriage before the age 15. And obviously, violence and sexual initiation accompanied by force is a part of that. Every day, about 6,000 girls around the world are faced with enduring uh, female genital mutilation, generally done without anesthesia. And here's the interesting thing. It's sad. But in all of these countries where this is happening, these things are against the law. They're technically laws on the books against them, but they're just ignored. You know, injustice and violence and ruthlessness was not only true in the 8th century B.C. It's still happening in our world today, right? Well, thankfully... As the book ends, it doesn't end on that note. There's still one more promise of hope. Israel is guilty and they are broken, but there is hope. There's hope that a forgiving, loving God is going to save the remnants. Verse 7 of chapter 7, but as for me, the prophet says, I wait or I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. And I love the question he asked in verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. 
and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Do you know when God treaded our sins underfoot? Do you know when God hurled all of our iniquities in the depth of the sea? It was at the cross of Jesus Christ. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So here we go. The God who judges sin also brings hope. Now, how do we take this home? Let me just quickly wrap it up and just answer that question. How should we today respond to God's word to them hundreds of years ago? Because it's God's word to us also. And I want to encourage you in four ways. First of all, I encourage you to examine yourself. Examine yourself. Are, are you guilty of any of the sins that Michael's audience was? Are, are you guilty of idolatry? Are you guilty of unfair trade practices? You know, you don't have to actually have a physical scale that's, you know, crooked. It might just be the way you make your sales presentation that isn't based on integrity. One pastor writes this. We live in a world where injustice, large and small, goes on every day, everywhere. Micah says, this is what God requires of you. Do justice. Be an agent of justice. I cannot correct all the injustice in the world, but I can do something. I can notice. I can read. I can study. I can be thoughtful about what's going on in the world. I can pay attention to which governments and companies are being just and which ones are not. I can, I can pray. I can ask God to help me treat others fairly. I can at least have the courage to stand up for people who are being treated unfairly in my little world, in my school, my office, my neighborhood, my home. I who have so much more than I need, so much more than I deserve, I can give some of what I have to others who have no food or home or hope. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Examine yourself today. Is this, is this tr- in any way, is this true of me? Secondly, insist on high standards for leaders. Insist on high standards for leaders. As I mentioned in the commissioning, praise God. Not that these leaders and the other leaders at Harvest are perfect, but they are people of integrity. And we always have to insist that our leaders... Walk with God and their lives. We can look at their lives and say they are people of integrity. Number three, pray for and witness to the lost. You know, the people of Micah's day were just broken and lost and they needed somebody like Micah to come in and first of all, speak the truth about their sin, but also inject some hope. And that's. That's true for us today. We live in such a dark society. People are broken. They cover their brokenness. They hide their brokenness. They put on a smile. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? They'll say things like that, but they're broken. Without Christ, they're headed for an eternity separated from God. And it's up to us to inject some hope. Share with people. Love people. 
Love on people. Pray for people. And tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our ultimate hope. And finally, rejoice in the Messiah. Rejoice in the Messiah. I invite you, if you're hearing this message either online or you're here in person, if you just have heard about Jesus, if you just have heard about church things, or you've been just going through church motions, to if today, if you realize there is a Messiah who came and died for me, a Savior who was perfect to take my sin and and bridge the gap between me and God that I can't bridge on my own, his name is Jesus. I encourage you to rejoice in him. And for you, if you've never followed him and begun following him by faith, if you've never turned away from your own life and your own sin and selfishness to him, that's what the Bible calls repentance, in faith, do it today. <laughs> and if you're a believer in Jesus, there's one place, there's one person to rejoice in that will never fail you. And that's Jesus. Our hope is in Christ alone. We sing that hymn fairly often at harvest. It's, to me, it's one of those ones you can't sing too much. We sang it a couple of weeks ago. In Christ alone, my hope is found, right? He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Harvest, rejoice in the Messiah. Rejoice in him alone. For every sin, the last line of verse 2, every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. The God who judges sin also brings hope. And we say praise his holy name. Amen. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.